0: Hello there, welcome back. I'm James Paniki. This is Mnex's weekly podcast covering the world of regulatory affairs, as only Mlex reporters can do. And in around 10 minutes from now, we'll be talking about automated vehicles in the United Kingdom. Consumers are embracing the new technology, but regulators are now at a fork in the motorway, struggling to keep up with recent advances and at risk of relegating the country to playing catch-up. So, stick around for that if you can. But first, an extraordinary legal clash unfolding in California. It has been two years since Facebook was accused of illegally copying the world's largest repository of digitized and realistic three-dimension objects and scenes, objects and scenes over which a Lithuanian startup is claiming ownership at the time the allegations appeared highly unlikely why would a social media platform need digitized objects but now facebook's parent company has rebranded as meta platforms and has launched a bold vision of enhanced reality called the metaverse and wouldn't you know it the allegations are now starting to take on a very different meaning So much to talk about here today. Mike Swift, of course, is MLex's chief global digital risk correspondent. He works out of our San Francisco offices, and he joins me now. So, Mike, let's start from a very basic question. Uh, What is computer vision, and why is teaching computers how to see, in quotes, why is that so difficult?
1: Sure. So, uh, it's a very simple thing for humans and animals, even. Um, If I hold up The bin uh, where we keep our cat food for our cat, she instantly recognizes what it is, and it's not very complicated. But for a computer, you basically need to translate a string of pixels and numbers, very complicated one, into the recognition that this is a bin of food that the cat instantly recognizes. And if you think about it, if you have like a rectangular food bin and you turn it, uh, 90 degrees, the dimensions are going to be totally different. So unless the computer has a database that knows that um, this is a rectangular thing and its dimensions are going to be very different when it's rotated 90 degrees, it won't recognize it anymore. It won't be able to see that it's a bin of food the way the cat can see, you know, sort of instantly. So it's it's very interesting that um, it's something which is the most simple thing that humans can imagine, you know, just recognizing mundane Um, objects like pieces of furniture or plants or bins of food are very, very complicated technical tasks for computers to be able to do. And and that's really what Facebook has to conquer in order to move into the metaverse.
0: Okay, so this brings us to a Lithuanian startup called Planner 5D. Uh, Firstly, what did this uh, startup do? And what was the value of developing computer vision. And I suppose even more importantly, tell us something about synthetic data and why it's so important to developing the
1: metaverse. Sure. Well, Planner 5D was a company that was launched about a decade ago in Lithuania, and they still have a website. It's quite interesting to look at. It's it's actually quite handy if you're doing any home design work, but um, basically what it does is is create a it, it offers a 2d or 3d rendering of a home or a yard and you can move things around so you can get a sense of oh if i moved the dining room table how would it look or if i you know installed a kitchen island here how would it fit with the rest of my my kitchen and it, so um that's really what it, what they do they have an iphone app they have an android app and and Apparently, it's a successful business. But along the way, they realized that they were um, these um, artificial renderings of objects, of pieces of furniture, swimming pools, plants, paths, things in the backyard that they used for home design could be very, very valuable for training uh, computer vision, artificial intelligence algorithms. And so they sort of pivoted their business and have now... um, amassed what they say is the world's largest repository of synthetic data images and scenes which can be used to train computer vision ai Um, to uh, you know to go back to the example of the the cat food bin These renderings allow you to see things in three dimensions, so you can rotate the table and you can see it from all different angles. And that's critical for a computer that wants to be able to see the same thing. It has to be able to do that in three dimensions and look at it from all angles. So um, that's become a very valuable thing for them.
0: So the allegation here is that Facebook took this
1: information without paying for it, right? It's a very interesting story that they're telling. Of course, we have to remember this is has yet to be proven in a court of law. But the allegation is that Princeton University, which is one of the great universities in America, realized they needed to do some training of their uh, computer vision algorithms. So they basically went in and scraped, uh, pulled out all the data, the renderings, and then shared it with Facebook and other companies. And um, Facebook uh, runs an annual competition for university students, graduate students, to try and uh, develop uh, computer vision algorithms and do scene recognition. And so Facebook, uh, the allegation goes, took this data from Princeton and shared it and, and with a bunch of other universities and used it for purposes we don't yet know. But um, that's what the story is, and um, the case is progressing, and uh, it's become much more interesting with Facebook's declaration that it's going into the metaverse. Okay, so
0: tell us something about what decision Facebook, now Meta, um, asked a federal judge to make in this case, and why is that uh, decision, or why is that request for a decision so unusual?
1: So, we've been covering this case for more than a year because it sort of piqued our interest here in San Francisco when it was filed. It was like, hmm, it just doesn't seem to make sense. You know, why would Facebook be interested in all these these renderings, this synthetic data, uh, uh, you know, which is so important for training AI? And so we started following it, and then the metaverse came along, and all of a sudden, ah, the light bulb went off. Now we see why Facebook perhaps was interested. But at a hearing last week, uh, we learned that Facebook was asking a federal, a United States federal judge, to do something which no federal judge had ever agreed to, apparently before. This was what came out in the hearing, and that was to segregate all this information within the United States to not allow this Lithuanian company to download or um, host any of the data, uh, any of the the documents, rather, that were are part of the the evidence in this case. And uh, when the judge heard that, that it had never been done before, he suddenly got um, very skeptical that this was something he should do. As he said, well, Facebook must have been involved in scores, hundreds of cases involving non-U.S. companies, and you've never asked to do this before. Why are you asking for this now? And uh, ultimately, he denied uh, that request. And why would Planner 5D have objected to that request? Well, basically, they're saying that um, we don't have the resources that Facebook does. And that was something that Judge Oreck, who who made this ruling, recognized that there's a real um, difference between the, the resources Planner 5D can offer to fight this, to pursue this lawsuit and compared to the lawyers that Facebook can employ. But um, one thing that came out was that planner 5d's own technicians were going to have to be involved in seeing these documents and reacting to them and and developing you know a legal strategy and so they were saying that these documents are large and that we really need to be able to download them that's typically what happens you don't just look at something online you download it onto a you know a local computer a hard drive and 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 then you you can analyze it but Um, What the lawyers for Planner 5D said was this would mean that we couldn't even travel outside the United States with laptops that had any of these documents in them. So before if I was to go, one lawyer said, well, I'm planning to go on vacation in Mexico and I'm going to have to scrub my laptop of any documents from this case, which is crazy. But it does give you, I think, some measure of what's at stake here that Facebook is asking for these really unprecedented restrictions to keep these documents from being stored in a computer outside the United States.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, given that Facebook was asking for uh, this unique uh, restriction, what does that, in fact, tell us about the significance of this material? Well, it
1: hints that it's very significant, that it's very valuable. Um, what Facebook said was, hey, we were burned by uh, in a case like this. They, there was a long-running lawsuit uh, between a, an app developer called, called 643 and um the that that company had a bunch of facebook's documents that were uh, protected by court order and then took them outside the united states to the united kingdom and ultimately those documents found their way into the hands of a member of parliament and that has caused facebook a whole lot of regulatory pain not only in the uk but around the world and so facebook was saying well we don't want to repeat this could happen with the lithuanian company but you know I, i The fact that um, they have never asked for something like this to be done before, I think, uh, hints at what's really at stake here. Now, you and I have discussed Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse
0: in an earlier podcast, but I wonder, based on uh, these issues, what role would computer vision be likely
1: to play in that vision? So I just can't get enough of the metaverse. (laughs) I'm just so fascinated by it. And a lot of other people feel the same way. I was at a conference yesterday where one of the founders of Google Maps described it as a dystopian nightmare, uh, Zuckerberg's vision. But he views it as this is going to be a tremendous benefit to the world. And there were sort of two applications in um, the hour and 20-minute video that Facebook meta platforms, I should say, released at the end of October. Um, One was... um, Uh, Say you want to find something in your home, uh, a coffee cup. Um, If you have a computer which is very adept at at, uh, recognition, at at computer vision, uh, it will have seen the coffee cup, stored its location. So when you say, Facebook, tell me where my coffee mug is, it will instantly know and direct you to it. Um, Another really interesting application they showed was for controlling home appliances with just um, a gesture. So you wouldn't actually have to touch a remote to turn on your television. You would just look at it. Uh, the system would recognize that you're looking at something which is a television, which you have control over. And through a sensor that could be just as simple as a bracelet that would sense your muscle movements on your wrist, you could just make a quick gesture in, towards your television and it would turn on and you could change the channels. So um, essentially it'd be like magic. You could just look at something in your house and it would do what you want. And sounds very convenient, very very nice, I guess. And for people with limited mobility, you could see there'd be a real value to that. Um, and, and so those were sort of two applications that, that Facebook talked about in that, that video. They said, we have a long way to go before we can actually do that. But they actually showed a, um, a kind of a mock-up or a model of how that this would actually work. It was really fascinating.
0: Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through the metaverse today. Let's hope we can talk about it again very soon.
1: I hope so. I can never get enough of the metaverse, James.
0: Mike Swift, MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent, and he was speaking to us from San Francisco. And Mike's analysis of META's Lithuanian lawsuit is ready for you to read and enjoy. Just go to our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com and head for the News Hub tab, the repository of the very best of Mlex's reporting and analysis. Subscribers, of course, have access to the portfolio of work from Mike and the San Francisco team on the Planner 5D lawsuit. And as Mike said, we've been following this one for some time now, I think from the start of 2020. So there's certainly plenty there for you to read. This is MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki, and thank you for making it this far. And, of course, if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, you can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. That way we'll be appearing in your feed every Friday and you won't have to lift a finger. Now, UK regulators are facing growing pressure to grapple with automated vehicles. What are automated vehicles, I hear you ask? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But the tech industry is now warning that the UK risks falling behind other countries. And a report due to be published soon will set out exactly what it is that the UK needs from its regulators in this field. Good thing that Emlex's Jakob Krupa is following the latest developments for us from our London offices, and he joins us now. So Jakob, uh, what's the story here? I mean... Uh, Where does that concern that regulators might not be able to keep up with automated vehicle technology, where does that actually come from? Essentially the concern is about the fact that the UK
2: has been seen as a leader in terms of testing autonomous vehicles for the last few years. And the UK government was one of the first ones to actually adopt a framework for that, invested about £200 million in a series of trials run in the uk to see what is the potential of the technology what can be done with it if we adopt autonomous automated vehicles what sort of efficiencies we can discover there now the, the question that tech uk and others are opposing now which is a uk tech industry association is it's all good to have that in t- tests and trials but how about actually deploying that on the streets of uk and on the roads of the uk and the uk framework for that is somewhat lagging behind europe that's what they say particularly france and germany with both of them have specific regulations on this and the uk tech industry is essentially looking at it and thinking look with all that investment going into this it would be a shame if we now lost that pole position because we are dragging our feet in terms of regulation that actually makes it possible to deploy these vehicles on the roads so the whole discussion is now about how we transfer that knowledge that Um, ability to test these cars and test these vehicles into something tangible that we can actually properly benefit from.
0: And Jakob before getting into the nitty-gritty of the regulatory landscape maybe just let's clarify when we talk about automated vehicles what do we mean exactly?
2: So uh, as a general rule, there's a, there are six levels of automation. That, that's how the industry looks at it. And we're starting with zero, which is, well, no automation. And it's all about human control. And it's essentially a car that most of us would drive probably 10, 15 years ago, going all the way to level five, which is full automation. Essentially, you sit back, relax, read a book. Just ignore everything. You just you just travel without any input whatsoever. Now, obviously, that's, that's the dream. That's what we want to get to eventually. But I think most people would say we are now somewhere between level two and three. And level two is a partial automation. So your car can do simultaneously a couple of things. It can help you with steering, help you with accelerating, help you with de-accelerating if it sees something dangerous on the road in front of you and essentially goes all beep and say, like, stop doing this because this is mad. And level three, which is conditional, in the sense that if there are certain conditions met on the road, the the road is very clear, you can see the markings, the car can do certain things without you even paying particular attention. It wants you to be ready to intervene, And that's one of the critical elements of where we are now. We want to get rid of that element as well. So the cars now want you to be ready to intervene. But then obviously there's the whole question about how quickly you can have that situational awareness to intervene if something's going on. Now the the dream is to get to all to, all the way to level five and then deploy that in all sorts of places. You know, so therefore, I think the idea of having like driverless taxis, you know, platooning around the country and driving stuff around without driver shortages, as the UK is experiencing at the moment, I think that dream is where we want to get.
0: Okay, then. So assuming that, as you said before, there is in fact some regulatory uncertainty in the UK over EV. Of vehicles why is there that problem and who will be affected by that uncertainty
2: so essentially the uncertainty primarily obviously affects car makers and those who invest significant amounts of money to make sure they are ready for this uh, and obviously the question there is you know if we've had all these tests in the uk and if we have if we have this technology tested in the uk now it would be a shame to see deployed first in germany or france or perhaps you know us or elsewhere Um, So the question is how quickly we can translate that into a success. But then, obviously, automated vehicles pose all sorts of new questions. And then you have questions about insurance, about liability. I'm sure insurance companies will be looking at it and thinking, you know, if we are liable to all of that, surely we will need to fix and change a bit our model, the way we charge people for it. We will need to probably strike new deals with car makers about, um, you know, who's liable for essentially software driving your car. But then, obviously who's looking at it is also all sorts of ubers all sorts of transport companies all sorts of mobility services companies thinking essentially how we can make our services more efficient quick example of that will be potentially what you know some some um right hailing companies are looking at it what if we don't need to have a driver in every single car but what we can do instead is have a car which is essentially self-driving and then have an offshore you know center where essentially we have drivers that can potentially intervene if it's really necessary Obviously, that will be way cheaper than having drivers in every single car. Um, Similarly, in public transport, there's lots of trials going on at the moment. One announced literally last week about driverless shuttles essentially going around campuses or certain routes across the country, testing, you know, is it feasible to have a car that's driving itself with passengers on board? If so, that's a significant saving. So lots and lots of people are looking at it and thinking like, we want to deploy it, but we want to deploy it in a safe and responsible way because, and that's one of the biggest problems with automated autonomous vehicles, is if you want to do it, you you need to win the public's trust. And at the moment, everything we know about is people are let's say, hesitant about it. They they like the idea. They cl- see the clear benefits. Also about comfort, but also about safety. Obviously, you would imagine that driverless cars will not be trying to, you know, bounce into each other. But then at the same time, like, yeah, but that thing about driverless, and, and I think that's telling in itself that, you know, a few years back, we would call the technology driverless cars. And because it was so, I would say, difficult to digest for the public, it's now automated autonomous. It's just It just kind of... Shifting the focus from not having a driver to this car is just being so smart that you can just relax. Um, and I think, and I think that whole discussion there will be exploring, will be, will be going forward further because the public needs to be won over with this. And as we know, the first years of deployment of autonomous, automated, automated vehicles um, can be tricky because obviously things can and probably will go wrong.
0: Okay, so you've outlined the technological uh, way forward in a way, but let's talk about some of the, the, the concerns, some of the challenges uh, for UK regulators. I mean, what are they up against when it comes to this type of technology?
2: So the, the biggest the, the biggest problems are about liability and about who's paying for this if something goes wrong, but also about creating a structure that makes it easy for people to, to trust in this and believe that this is going to work. And obviously, that sounds very general, but it has very, uh, very specific implications for example if you want to have autonomous vehicles on your roads do you want them to mix with other traffic or do you want them to go and have a kind of designated lanes for connected vehicles now if you do that then obviously that decreases the capacity in general in terms of how many cars you can have on the road so again it's pretty problematic and in countries like uk for example where the road infrastructure tends to be pretty old then obviously there's a question of how much money we need to put into into this to make sure it works in the first place. So all of these questions are being looked at at the moment by the UK government, and particularly there's this thing called the Law Commission of England and Wales. They're looking at how to develop a new framework that would allow for safe deployment of automated cars on the UK roads. Um, They have been working on this for three years. Their report was expected to come this month, but will come early next year with final recommendations for the UK government saying essentially this is what we think after consulting the whole industry this is what we think you need to do now this is all good and this, the depth of the study is just absolutely breathtaking I've read the whole you know a couple of thousands pages of this the problem is it will take another couple of years to translate that into legislation and I think that's where most industry players are concerned this is just taking a lot mm. of time.
0: So let's assume that uh, the UK embraces this new technology, that the public out there uh, is happy to set aside what Boris Johnson would call vroom, vroom, rah, rah of uh, traditional cars, and they're ready to, uh, to, to look into this new technology. What happens next? I mean, how is this going to be resolved in the UK? So
2: essentially, at the end of it, we'll we'll need to see a specific set of legislation. Now, UK's going along that way and kind of trying to make it um, in a a couple of steps. First, we'll probably um, see deployments. Uh, of an automated lane keeping system which is essentially a system that kind of has two elements at the same time one it's lane keeping as as the name kind of suggests and then adaptive cruise control essentially if you go on a highway it will be able to keep you know maintain certain speed look at lanes make sure you're not crashing into something you're not veering off the road that is in itself a partial automation probably level three Um, and that will was expected this year we're still waiting for the government to confirm whether this is coming this year and this is like the first big step towards a widespread full-scale deployment of this but then obviously the law commission report will be the absolutely critical part of this and then the question is how quickly will the government be able to move because as i mentioned earlier other countries are not waiting for the uk to get to get its act together germany france both passed relevant laws and um, and they are essentially putting them into work at the moment and there will be a lot of concern as we've heard from tech uk and others that the UK can get can essentially um, lose the momentum, uh, and and obviously for the country, given the investment uh, into the development of these technologies, it, it, that that will be just a worrying development itself.
0: Jakob, the main thing, as far as I can tell, is that you are never automated, that you're never going up to the uh, fifth level, that uh, you're always at our disposal to uh, talk us through all of these fascinating issues. So thank you again for all of your coverage of uh, future mobility.
2: Thank you very much. Pleasure.
0: And that was Jakub Krupa, MLEC's senior correspondent, covering, among other things, future mobility. And he was speaking to us from London. And you know when Jakub says he has read a 2,000-page report, he has actually done it. He's not joking and his analysis of this issue is at our website, ready for you to enjoy, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word.com, and head for the soberly named News Hub tab. Now, it saddens me to have to wrap up the podcast, but I can assure you that we will be back in your feed next Friday for all of the latest news and gossip from the world of regulatory affairs with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. My name is James Paniki, and from everyone here at Mlex and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now.